you know, the apostles write in, in Luke 17, Lord, that you would increase my faith. And that's part of my journey. A little bit about when I was growing up, my parents took me to church. They're here during the service. I'm glad they're here. They took me to church when I was younger. I grew up going to church, um, you know, just a, a, just normal, good life. I was a little bit of a hellion, um, a difficult child. I think my mom and dad are amening that one. I remember uh, it, one Sunday I was kind of coming around the corner. I hear two of the, the Sunday school teachers talking about me, and I hear him say, one of them say to the other one, that Wilbanks kid, I'm telling you, that kid is the spawn of Satan. And I'm like, huh, okay, I'll, I'll tone it down and not eat all the donuts this Sunday, I guess. So it was one of those things. I, I remember in our journey, I was in second grade. I got a, an infection behind my eye. It was one of those times in my life I, I remember God just increasing our faithfulness, increasing our faith. I remember um, I got something called paracellulitis behind my right eye in my sinus cavity. And uh, I remember being in the hospital for, for about three weeks before they could figure out what was going on. My mom and dad would be praying for me. Family and friends would be coming in, checking on us. And I remember taking our, our family's faith to the next level, growing us. And seeing God do what only God could do in this situation. I had a tough time diagnosing and figuring out what was going on. It was very painful. It was a difficult. I remember my father could take his fist and put it on this side. And my face was about that size on this side. My eye socket, everything was closed off. And the doctor came in and, and realized what was going on. And took my parents out. Had a pretty sobering conversation with them about the surgery that I was about to have to have. They came back in, and you could just see a different look on their face. They took me down and, and went into surgery. After I got out of surgery, I remember them you know, just sharing with me that the swelling was in millimeters from hitting my brain. God and only God can orchestrate the timing for what God has. There was a third person in the state of Georgia that had it. The other two had passed away. God and only God. From there, I remember growing up, seeing my parents go to church, seeing them be faithful, seeing my mom faithfully teach, sitting there every week preparing for a lesson, preparing to be able to teach kids, just continuing to increase us. We had those uh, wall heaters, you know, when you, when, you, when you, in the bathroom. Anybody grow up, you had the wall heater look like a little waffle grate on the outside of it. I had to, I had to experience with God one day. Got out of the shower, <clears throat> toweling off, walked over because it was, it was a day like this, cold. Got in front of the heater, toweling off, went to dry my feet, and when I did, oh, yeah. Screamed. Mom came running, banging on the door. I'm okay, I'm okay. Everything was fine until I got into high school playing football, showering. All of a sudden, I was known as Waffle Butt for the rest of my high school career. Just some fun times when I was growing up. I remember being in sixth grade, I remember uh, being there with some friends at a church service and seeing them go up, and I was like, I don't want to be left alone, so I'm going too. I remember praying something and, and getting wet. There was nothing really changed in my life. There was no surrender. It was just a religious activity. Continued on in my journey to my junior and senior year. That's when God really began to get a hold of me. I was miserable. I was running. I was doing anything and everything I could, just being dumb. I remember sitting in a service at a youth retreat, cutting up, doing whatever. Invitation came, and 
you know, that's when everybody shuts you down. You can't flirt with the girls next to you then. You can't write notes. can't be talking to your buddies. can't do that because everybody's quiet during the invitation or else God's going to strike you with lightning. I don't know. And I remember just sitting there going, when is this going to be over, rubbing my face? And I remember God was speaking to my heart saying, you can continue to run from me and you'll continue to be miserable. And I will continue to pursue you because I love you that much. First time in my life, I said, all right, God, if you're real, prove it. If you're real, I, will, I, I, I surrender my life to you. Come in my life, forgive me, change my life, transform me. If you're real, I'll know that you have done this. If you're not, I'll live the way I have. When I looked up, everybody was gone. They were all getting on the buses, loading up, going back to where we were staying at, and I'm the only one still sitting there and just going, all right, God, here we go. Didn't know what I was praying back then. He's transformed my life. Continuing to say, God, increase my faithfulness. Grow my faith. Seeing him do so. Remember my senior year, day that changed my life forever. Day I met the love of my life. That's right. From the first day she saw me, I've been cutting trees for a lady, doing a lot of work in her yard. I was wearing uh, oil-stained, sawdust-odored jeans and flannel shirt, wearing the musty cologne of chainsaw gas. <laughs> she walked in, and I, I'm telling you, she was done. From then on, she was done. First time she saw me, I'm telling you, she was done. We began to date. She began going to church with me. She saw that I was a Sunday morning Christian. God began to work in our hearts. My first day of college, we ended up going to the same school together. Some say that I followed her there. I would agree. <laughs> began to uh, move my stuff in. A guy walked up named Jason Ellaby. Jason said, hey, can I help you grab some of your stuff and take it in? Yeah, sure, man. Everybody hates moving crap began to help me move stuff into my dorm. He was being intentional about finding some freshman guys he could invest in. He was a junior at the school. He came by and checked on me and I said, hey, me and a few other guys are going to start meeting on Tuesday nights for Bible study. You in? Yeah, sure, man. For a couple of weeks, man, he'd ask, hey, you getting in the Word? What's God showing you? Man, I, I ain't read it yet. Hey, man, read it. Read it. Get into it. Read it. I just wasn't doing it. I wasn't reading it. That third week, he would call me. That Tuesday night we had met, hey, man, get into it. Promise me you were going to get into it before you go to bed tonight. Yeah, man, I promise you, I'm going to read it. Remember that night, he called me. It's like 11 o'clock at night. Hey, man, what you doing? Man, I'm getting ready to go to bed. What are you doing? He's like, hey, dude, have you read it yet? I'm like, read what? Man, read the Bible study. We just left two hours ago. You promised me you were going to read it before you go to bed. You just told me you are going to bed. Have you read it yet? No, I ain't read it yet. Go get your Bible. What? Go get your Bible right now. Open it up. What? Hey, man, me and you are going to read it right now on the phone. I'm like, no. I got this guy named White Shack that's staying in the dorm with me. He's like six foot nine, looks like a gorilla. He's four years older than me. We just met a few weeks earlier. I'm like, oh, man, the guy already thinks I'm weirdo. I'm about to read the Bible with some guy on the phone. Jason's like, hey, dude, go get your Bible. We're going to open it up and read it right now. I'm like, crap. Go get it. We read it. Hey, man, so what does this say? Okay, this. Okay, how do you apply that to your life? I guess this. All right, man, hey, get into it tomorrow. I'm going to call you tomorrow. Let's talk about it. All right. 
Next night, man, phone rings about 11 o'clock. Hey, man, what are you doing? Going to bed. What are you doing? Hey, uh, you read it yet? <sighs> no, man. Go get your Bible. What? Go get your Bible. Jeremy, man, he pops up looking at me just laughing. White Shack just laughing at me. I can't believe you're about to read the Bible with some dude on the phone. I'm like, shut up, man. Leave me alone, you know. And Jeremy ended up giving his life to Christ three months later because he saw the difference that God had made in my life. Every night that week, third night, Rex, he never called me before. He calls me. Hey, buddy, this is Rex. He's another freshman. Hey, uh, Jason told me to call you. I'm like, yeah, okay, what's up? Uh, Jason's got something going on tonight, but he told me to call you. And, uh, hey, uh, have you read it? Uh, have you, you, you read, have you got another word today? I'm like, no, why? He's like, oh, dude, Jason told me if you hadn't read it, we got to read the stupid thing on the phone. I'm like, ah. So now I'm sitting reading the Bible with some other dude on the phone I just met like a couple weeks earlier. And I was like, yeah, so every night that week, either Rex, Jason, or Mark called me and asked me, hey, man, you get into it. For the first time in my life, I started reading the Bible and started seeing God speak in my heart. Before that, I was always wondering why there were like two Johns, like who are these guys, and like what is this? It was confusing to me. For the next three years, Jason discipled me, poured into me, invested in me, showed me what it was like to really truly love someone the way that Jesus calls us to love a brother. During that time, Aaron began to see me grow in my walk with Jesus, see the transformation that he was making in my life. I'll never forget it. Three years into our relationship, my wife, who's now my wife, sitting there and saying, I want that same Jesus and surrendering her life to Jesus. We had been married for a couple of years. Got to see the birth of our kids. I'm going to tell you, God designed us. We are intricately, wonderfully made. When I saw those things happen, I, hey, God and only God could do that, right? God and only God could do that. He's designed, he's, he's the one who has the ability to be able to, to, to put us together in a way that only he can. He is the creator, and you can see it in the birth of your children. You can see it in that life. In my walk, that's what I saw. I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. I saw what God did. God and only God can do. In my journey, I continue to, to, to struggle through. I've done a lot of stupid things, but God has taken those things that the enemy would want to use to disqualify me. God has used to highly qualify me for his service. Did you catch that? Those things in your life that the enemy wants to do to disqualify you from his service, those are the same things that God can use to highly qualify you for his service. If you allow him to, God and only God. In 2008, God gave me a, a vision to, to spearhead planting some churches in the Dominican Republic. He had given me a very specific place, very specific dream, and a vision of a very specific place. A few short weeks later, two months later, less than two months later, he took us to the place he had shown us. Took a young man with me named Ronnie. Ronnie then moved to the Dominican Republic and began to plant a church with this little 17-year-old, 18-year-old Dominican kid. Begins to disciple him, begins to disciple others. I've seen 17 churches in four years be planted from this one small village. Ryan discipled this young man named Fermin. 
for me and continue to grow in his walk and in his journey. God moved him to Germany a few years ago. For me, he's working at a church plant there, working with um, a lot of internationals that are coming through the area. Ronnie, in the meantime, feels called to go to the Middle East. Ronnie goes to the Middle East as a servant in this remote area of Egypt. As he's serving there, he begins to do ministry with these Syrians. That's the heart that God gave him. They were already fleeing out of Syria. He's doing ministry with them for a couple of years, and his time is giving, his time to, to, to return is coming up. And about a month before he's supposed to leave, he gets a, a, a phone call from a, a, a Dominican kid that he knew, named Fermin, who's now serving in Germany. You know what was going on in Germany a couple of years ago? Syrian refugee crisis. They're getting poured in, poured in, poured in. Syrian calls Ronnie and says, hey, I don't know what you've been doing lately, but hey, I was wondering if you could come over and help. I know you speak several languages. I knew you were working on Arabic. Hey, we have something going on. I don't know if you could do this or not. We have a bunch of Syrians coming in, and we, don't, we can't even communicate with them. Could you come over and help us? Ronnie's turn's finishing up. He says, actually, for the last two years, I've been working for, with Syrians in Egypt. I've learned the culture. I've learned the heritage. I've speak the language. In fact, I finish up in a month. I'll come. Ronnie goes and then works with Fermin, who seven years earlier, he discipled Saul, come to know Christ and, and grow to become a pastor. God and only God can take some kid from the Dominican Republic, put him in the middle of Germany, connect those dots again with Ronnie to bring him in to change lives. Only God can do that. I remember being in the Middle East, going over and, and, and sitting and sharing in this area that it was not popular to be sitting and sharing in. Set up a meeting about 11 o'clock at night with three Muslims. One's name is Gis, one's name is Islam, and one's name is Muhammad. One of their fathers was very high up in the Islamic Brotherhood. Didn't know if we were going to be ambushed when we went into this meeting or not. Had the opportunity to sit down and for, for, for three hours share with them the gospel. Answer questions. Point out Isa, the Messiah, from the Quran. Point out the scriptures in the Quran where it talks about Isa. Point out the pictures of who Jesus is. Talk about the gospel and answer questions. Ask them questions. If it wasn't Jesus who died on the cross, they switched his body. Who did they switch his body with? Questions they had no answer for. After a few hours, I'll, I'll never forget this. We stood up. Muhammad grabbed me. Grabbed me by the beard. I'd grown it out at that time to kind of go with the culture grabbed me by the beard and pulled me to his face. And he looked at me and said, the words you have spoken tonight, the words of life I have never heard before. I have never heard anyone speak of the things that you have spoken of. And this is the most meaningful conversation I have ever had in my entire life. I want you to know I will never forget this conversation and these words of God's love, you have spoken to me. A few weeks later, I heard of them coming to know Christ. They were willing, they, they knew what it could cost them, but they were willing to pay the price. 
only God can take some jacked up flunky from Decula, Georgia. Put him in the middle of nowhere, Middle East, to share with these guys. Only God can do that. That's my story of faith. It's an only God story. Luke 17, increase our faith, the apostle said. Increase our faith. I was in Brazil preaching one time. There was a guy translating for me. And as he was translating, it was the first time he'd ever translated. I remember speaking, and I sat down, and when I got done, the pastor got up. Man, he just was going off for about five minutes. I mean, snot and tears going off. I'm like, what is going on? I'm like, what's he saying? You know, he's like screaming, like, I'm like, what in the world is happening here? We're getting all Pentecostal up in here. And I'm like, it's the Baptist church. So it scared me. And so I'm like, Edson, what's he saying? Edson's like, shh. I'm like, Camilla, what's he saying? Shh. Like five minutes, he won't tell me anything the guy's saying. I'm like, finally, I'm like, dude, what is going on? He's like, he's just recapping exactly what you just said. He's telling them to do what you just said. I'm like, what? I was like preaching in Romans 12, 1 and 2, like Benji did a couple weeks ago. It's like, man, God interrupts your life, man. Follow after him. Godly interruptions. <laughs> he's saying, he's telling the people that God has just interrupted their life. No matter what they had planned today, cancel it. Go get all their friends and their family and their neighbors and bring them back here tonight. God's just interrupted their life. And I'm like, oh, goodness, that's not what I was saying. But, uh, and I was asking him, like, what's the word, like, that you use to translate? This is what I was talking about. Like, just like, hey, he interrupts your life. I'm like, yeah. He's like, no, like, that God takes you from where you are and tells you, you go do this. I'm like, ah, I guess the gospel kind of does say that. I'll never forget it. We pulled up that evening. We had a demo team coming back to do a karate demo. We couldn't get three blocks from the church because there was hundreds and hundreds of people in this little church of 150 people which about 80 were there that morning. They've built scaffolding all the way around the church so they could even see into the church to hear the gospel. So 800 people were there that night. Hundreds came to know the Christ. Hundreds. That church tripled in one night. We partnered with the right people who follow up with people and see life change happen. We go back the next year and we're talking, saying, hey, do you need us to come back again? No, actually, we're good. We're still discipling and growing where God has led us before. You know, that's incredible. When you go and you have a missionary you've been working with to tell you we don't need you anymore, that is awesome. When the national believers are taking hold of the faith and doing what they need to do, God and only God. I close with this. I walked with this family for several years through cancer young man named Justin John. Justin was one of my students and was playing basketball one night. Fell into his knee. Found out it was cancer. Swelled up. And for the next six years, he would battle on again, off again. He's clean. He's come back. He's clean. He's come back over and over. Been walking with this family through this and their journey. They would call me in the middle of the night. I'd leave and go over and pray with them. I'd sit with them. Sometimes even just calling and praying over the phone with them. January 2010 comes and the earthquake hits in Haiti. 
put together a team. We're getting ready to go down there about six weeks after the earthquake. That Friday night before we were to fly out on Saturday, Justin had been going downhill pretty hard. I remember standing in the driveway that night about 10 o'clock after Justin had passed away about an hour earlier. Just talking with his father and his father just saying, Stephen saying, hey, we would love for you to be a part of the funeral. I understand you got to, you know, you're supposed to be going, but, you know, hey, we'll, we'll figure it out. We can get it covered if you can't get back. And I'm like, I'm going to cancel. I'm not going to Haiti. God speaks in my heart and says, no, you're going and I've got your ticket back. So you don't understand at this time they didn't have any commercial flights leaving Haiti. They hadn't even opened up the international airport. There was rumors it was supposed to open again. I looked at Stephen and said, hey, look, man, I'll go. I'll call you on Monday, figure out if his funeral is going to be on, on Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Let me know, and I'll get back. God's going to get me back. Mara flew out, got down there, worked for a few days. Heard they had opened up the international airport for a couple of private flights. Tell the missionary to take me to the airport. I remember him dropping me off at the, the domestic airport instead of the international and saying, you don't, you don't have a chance of getting out of here. Just call me whenever you're, you're, you're done, and I'll come back and get you. I just looked at him. I said, listen, man, I got a ticket. It ain't got an airline name on it. It ain't got a flight number on it. It ain't got a time on it. But I'm going to tell you, God's got my ticket because that's what he had showed me before. That evening before I was flying back, the day before I was flying back, I was in Philippians reading. Philippians 1.25, this is where God took me to, and he said, convinced of this. And that's exactly where I was. That's what faith is. It's that point where I was, I knew that I had my flight back. He had it organized. He dropped me off the airport. I go in. After a couple hours, I find a flight that's going to the Dominican Republic, and if I can get on that, I can figure out a way to get back to the United States. I'm sharing, and, and, and for four hours, I'm sitting there waiting because there's a chance at one seat on a plane. And every time I get up to try to go somewhere to do something else, to try to figure out something else, because I didn't want to wait four hours. Why? Because we're not patient. It's our timing, not God's timing, right? Every time I try to get up, God would say, sit down, I've got you. Sit down, I've got you. Trust me. Four hours goes by, and they call me up, and they tell me, hey, that seat's gone. We didn't realize that somebody else, they actually did show up to get back. There is another flight that's leaving about 15 minutes from now from the international airport. If you can get over there, there may be a seat on that plane. So I take off, get over there, jump out, run up, and they tell me, hey, that, that plane's going down the runway right now. It's leaving. You've missed it. And I remember just that gut-sinking, heart-wrenching, God, why? Why did you do this? You told me you had this. You told me you've got this. You, well, I sat there for four hours. I could have been over here an hour ago. Why did you do this? I remember just being disgusted, walking out of the airport, walking through that this mob of people. They had just opened it up for a couple of private flights going in and out. And I'm telling you, not hundreds, but thousands of people standing out there. And I remember just walking through the crowd and getting to the, to the parking lot, walking through the second row of spaces, just mad at God, going, why did you do this? 
these two uniformed Marines come walking by. And as they're walking by, one of them just kind of stops and says, hey, you, you all right? Because <laughs> I wasn't all right. And I just like, I'm fine, man. What's going on? And he's like, hey, man, what's going on? I'm like, dude, just, just don't worry about it, man. I'm fine. He's like, no, no, no. You don't look good. What's going on, man? I'm like, dude, just listen. Here's what's going on. It's a two-minute version. That's what's going on. Just missed the only flight I could probably get out of here. Supposed to be coming back to do a funeral. Visitations tonight, starting at 6.30. Funeral tomorrow. I ain't getting home. God said he's got it, but where's he at? Remember that Marine looking at me in the face and going, son, stay right in step with me. I'm like, what? Stay right with me. Not a step behind. Right in step with me. No matter what happens, don't stop. Don't listen to anyone. Somebody tries to grab your bag, hang on to it. If I go around something, you go around something. You stay right with me no matter what. If somebody tries to stop you, don't listen to them. You stay with me. Do you understand me? Yes, sir. <laughs> so this guy, like, I'm like, uh huh. I had no idea what the heck was going on. He said, Come with me. Takes off. Man, we go through this crowd of people. We get to the first line of security. He just goes right through them. They're yelling at him in Haitian. He's just doesn't even pay him attention. Just says, Stay with me. Stay with me. Try and grab my bag, trying to stop me. Just stay with me. We get through the second line of security. We get to the x ray machine. He goes around it. He just he pushes a guy out of the way, says, come on. They're screaming, you know, well, you can't do that. We're calling the head of security right now. We're calling the head of security airport. You cannot go to that secure area, secure area. You cannot. And just continuing screaming and yelling at him in Haitian. I mean, listen, Americans, we can scream and yell. Look, Haitians, they got it going on. They got it going on. I remember walking through there, another line, and they're just screaming and yelling. Finally, all the chaos behind us passes. We get out to the tarmac. Takes me to the tarmac of the airport. He turns around, looks at me, says, son, this is as far as I can get you. There's three planes out here that are leaving, going somewhere. I don't even know where they're going, but I'd suggest going and try to find somebody and talking to them, see if they can get you out of here. I'm like, hey, is uh, somebody going to come get me or something? Because, like, those guys were serious about screaming and yelling, like all the radios in the airport are going off about these guys and, like, the head of security coming and all this stuff. I'm like, do I need to be, like, looking out for something? He let me go, son, I am the head of security here. Only God, right? Only God. So I ended up talking to some guys that are flying back to Miami. Told them what was going on. They're like, sure, man, we got a seat for you. Come on. Get on that plane, land in Miami. Get off, run down through there. Go up to the Delta counter, knock this guy out of the way. I'm like, I got to talk to her. He's like, go ahead, buddy. You know, I'm like, listen, I'm supposed to be flying back on Saturday. It's Tuesday. I got to get back for a funeral. Here's what's going on. Here's my ticket for Saturday. I got to get on a plane now to Atlanta. She's like, look, there's one leaving at 830. There's one leaving at like 11 minutes. You'll never make that. The one leaving at 830 gets you back late tonight. But that, it's, I can get you a standby. We don't have a seat on it. I'm like, listen, just get me a standby. Can you give me a standby to the one leaving now? She's like, I can't give you one of those. You're never going to make it, but I can give you one for the 830 flight. I'm like, fine, just give me whatever. She gives me that. I run to the front of the line of security. Same thing. I got to go. Go ahead. I remember running up, throwing my bag on the belt. 
I go through the x-ray machine, and all of a sudden my bag goes off, and I remember. I didn't go through any scans in Haiti, and that morning I threw everything I had in my bag, which includes my 12-inch Bowie knife we had been using for cooking, three of my buck knives, one of them was about eight inches long, and then this Rambo knife that I would use to cut wood to be able to build fires with. I had about five knives in my bag. They pull it off my backpack. They pull my backpack off. Two guys, security, get it up. They lay it all out on this, this, this stainless steel table, and they're like, where did you just come from? You flew with this what? I told them, I was like, listen, here's how I got here. Here's that, how that happened. I tell them that story of the Marine. They're like, they're just scratching their head now trying to figure out what's going on. I'm like, listen, I've got to get back. There's this funeral. Here's what's going on. Involved this kid with cancer. And by this time, they're, they're both like, man, we don't want to fill out stupid paperwork. And I'm like, listen, man, is there any way you can just let me go? Like, look, man, it's a felony to go through security areas like you've gone through. They're like, what do you expect us to do? I just went. Trash can. One, two, three, four to five knives. Evidently, those guys wanted the knives because they let me go. <laughs> I run down to the, the gate. The, there's one Delta agent there. The gate is closed. I see the plane sitting there. I'm like, no, God, please. I run up to her. I'm like, I'm supposed to be on that plane. I'm supposed to be on that flight. That's my, that's my plane. She's all flushed. She's like, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Where's your ticket? Give me your ticket. She punches in the code, opens the door. She gets my ticket. Doesn't look at it, just scans it. And that's where I'm like, oh, no. It's a standby ticket that's a maybe on an 830 flight. It's like 515 right now. She scans the thing, and it turns green. Only God. Only God. I run down through there. The other attendant is walking back up, and she's like, where did this guy come from? I just blow right by her, get to the airplane, turn the corner. The door is closed on the airplane. I bang on the door. I'm like, let me in. This flight attendant raises the shutter and jumps back. She's like stunned, surprised, scared. I don't know what all she had going on. Probably because I'd been in Haiti for several days, hadn't showered and looked pretty grungy and greasy. She called another attendant over. They're both frantic, both talking to each other, looking around, talking to each other, looking around. Finally opened the door and said, just sir, get in, just please quickly. We didn't realize you were still out there. Come, go sit down. Just tell me to go sit down. I later found out that it's against FAA regulations to open a plane door when it's been sealed on a runway. Only God, right? Only God. Called my wife as we are, as the ground, wheels are leaving the ground saying, I had told her since I left Haiti, Aaron, get my suit. Meet me at the airport in Atlanta in one hour. I'll be there. Go, bye. She's like, what? I'll call you when I land. That's it. Made it to the visitation at 7.30 that night. Saw a couple thousand people come through. Finished up visitation about 1.30 that morning. Next day, a couple thousand people at that funeral. We saw lives transformed. Only God. So I challenge you with this. Live an only God life. Allow him to do what only God can do. That's a good word. Is that not cool right there? So I think it's uh, so essential 
as Dustin comes on staff, for you guys to get a, uh, a glimpse of who he is and kind of what makes him tick. From an executive administrative standpoint, he's going to bring a lot of weight. But from a missional standpoint, the brother is serious. When Dustin went to Hebron, where he was for 17 years, Dustin had gone through this discipleship at Georgia College with this guy. And Dustin's like, well, I don't know what to do, but we're going to start a small Bible study. And so he started meeting with some high school kids. And within just a couple of years, there were like 120, 160 of these kids meeting in pockets of discipleship. And so uh, we've known each other for 17 years and being relentless about pursuing Jesus and responding to his pursuit has been absolutely crucial for this brother. So I'm so glad that he and I get to do uh, life together. And I'm so glad you're here. Here's something I want you to think about. When is the last time you just kind of tapped the brakes and you just kind of paused in some solitude and quietness, maybe in your prayer closet, whatever that is, and you took out a journal and a pen and just started reminiscing on some of those only God moments in your life. Those only God moments when he rescued you from some of those stupid decisions you were making or were about to make. And you sat there and you're like, only God blocked that from happening right there. Or maybe so, those only God moments as Dustin laid it out. His mom and dad being faithful and his mom and dad serving the king and taking him to church. And bam, at that, at that retreat where only God could really speak to him. Only God could introduce him to that guy at Georgia College. Only God could bring Aaron into his life that would almost blind her smell that she would even entertain the thought of looking at you. Because that is a beautiful girl. And believe me, even smelling good, he still needs help. <laughs> but when is the last time, seriously, that you stopped and started contemplating those only God moments in your life? Because I think a lot of times we, 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 we allow the pace of this world in which we live in we get so hurried and the speed of our days, oftentimes we get so consumed with those things that don't matter that, that we don't stop and think about those only God moments, Cruz. Only God. Only God could offer hope. Only God could offer restoration. Only God could offer deliverance. Only God could introduce me to Barb. He talks about being a redneck from Decula, from Noonan, and only God could hook me up with this brilliant, sharp girl from Toronto, Canada. Only God can do what God has done here at the Cross Loganville. I mean, Dustin shared that when I first started asking him to pray seven years ago about me coming here, and he's like, the church is what? I said, 70000 behind on its mortgage. The church is what? It's just gone through a lot of betrayal and rejection. I feel like God's leading me there. Do What? And then seven years later, I'm like, I want you to pray about something. He goes, all right, I'm with you. <laughs> it's only God how God works. Think about it. Only God. Close you with a few verses in this realm of thought. But God. Where would you be if you didn't have those only God, but God moments? And I started thinking about some verses that it, it meant a lot to me over the years. Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrates his love toward us, his own love that even though we were sinners, Jesus still died for us. 
But God demonstrates and shows and reveals his love that even when we're lost, alienated, and separated, the relentless pursuit of the tenderness of Christ continues to chase us. And I'm like, God, only God could rescue me from the realm of darkness I was involved in and transfer me into the kingdom of light. I sat there and think, look, look at how God worked there. But God, Ephesians 2 says, but God being rich in mercy, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with how he's loved us. He's continued to pursue us. We were dead in our sin and our trespasses, but God. And, and the only reason we sit here today is only God and but God making us, not giving up on us, continuing to pursue us. Some of us have lived so reckless. Some of us have lived so sinful. Some of us have even prayed prayers and really meant it, saying we were going to surrender and continue to rebel like hell. And God says, still, I'm chasing you. I love you. And you, you'll hear people in the Bible Belt, which is the bondage belt, make statements like, God helps those who help themselves. The gospel says God helps those who are destroying themselves. God helps those that even oppose him. Even when we were at war with God, but God being rich in mercy, the compassion of Christ and kindness of Christ being extended as we were living in misery, he goes, I'm chasing you. Like I said, that one guy that came in here this morning had a but God moment where he repented. You could tell his life is just jacked up, and he's like, I need God to rescue me. I need to embrace that God that would demonstrate his love for me. Even though I'm a pagan sinner, he loves me, and he's pursuing me. Here's the good news for us, Dustin, and many others. 1 Corinthians 1 says, but God has chosen the foolish things in this world to confuse those who are wise. He's chosen the things that are weak to shame those who are strong. God don't always call the qualified, but he does qualify those that he calls. We sit here thinking that God could use somebody foolish and weak when Dustin was sharing the story of being in the Middle East and sharing the gospel with those radical Islam guys, and deep down inside, the common ground was he knew they were, they were really looking for hope and they didn't have it in their belief system. And as he lays out the gospel, I'm like, he's chosen the foolish things of the world. He chooses people like you and I to take the gospel to the streets of Loganville and beyond we don't have to have all the answers. We just got to be willing vessels to be used by God. I think about 1 Corinthians 10, 13, that no temptation is overtaking you, but such is common to man. But God is faithful. But God, he, he's faithful to make a way of escape for us. But God is able to give salvation. But God is able to restore that which is broken. But God is able to use somebody foolish for his glory. But God, have you experienced but God in your narrative? If you reach that place where you've repented and 
but God has intercepted your life, but God has come in and started to transform your narrative, but God will lead you to these only God moments where you'll sit there going, man, God has been good to me. And even in the midst of pain, you sit here and you think, God's been good. God's been good. God's been good to you.